I'm so grateful for those of you who are joining us from our San Jose campus and for those who are also watching on small screens and large screens all across the U.S. and beyond. Hey, guys, check this out. Christmas season has arrived. It is so exciting to me. I'm happy, excited, looking forward to this new series that I'm uh, kicking off today calling uh, Making Room. And here's the deal. The world seems to be filling up more and more with more and more darkness. If there ever was a time we need the, the good news that flows from the reality of Christmas into our world, it's now. If there ever was a time we need to be reminded that because of Christmas, light has come into the world and the darkness cannot overtake it. It's now. So let's get ready. Today's message, I'm shaping it around a particular uh, insight, a Christmas shock. There is something stunning when we think about the events that surrounds the life of Jesus that is worthy of unveiling that I believe will have profound impact on how all of us live our lives moving forward. All right, so let's look at the passage that is before us today. Beginning, uh, we find it in Luke uh, chapter 2, beginning with verse 7. And she, Mary that is, brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all of the people. And there ends the reading. Can somebody say amen? Amen. Praise God. Now listen, over the next three weeks, we're going to look at this notion, the invitation, if you will, to make room through a variety of lenses. And it will be the events that surround the birth of Jesus, the Christmas, if you will, the original Christmas that will bring clarity and focus to the various perspectives that we're going to look at this, this invitation. But here's the deal. The realities that will become clearer and clearer as we teach through this series are not to be limited to simply the Christmas season. They should shape and help define how we live our lives 365 days a year. Make room. Now, for those of you who are familiar with the Christmas narrative, particularly as presented by the Gospel of Luke, the writer Luke, uh, beginning in, in, in verse 7, for example, uh, you'll be able to make a clear connection between what Luke writes uh, and this notion, this invitation to make room. Now, we start off by reading the New King James Version of what he wrote. Let's read it again. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. Why? Because there was no room for them in the end. Now, the moment you hear those words, there's no room for them in the end. I suspect that if you're familiar with the Christmas narrative that uh, uh, popping up in your mind may be scenes from various movies or perhaps some plays that were done in church settings or other settings that really kind of draw off of this notion, no room for them in the end. Here's the larger context. Uh, the Roman government had, was executing a empire-wide census, census 
uh, during that season. Joseph and Mary, who was living in Nazareth, she was nine months pregnant, had to return to the city of David, which is uh, the, the, the home place uh, for Joseph because he is of the lineage of David, King David, so that he could be counted. So they go from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And depicted in these various scenes are, are a variety of things. You might see the scene where they're kind of going from house to house to house trying to find room. Mary's pregnant. No room, no room. Or maybe you see it where they're going to something that looks actually like an inn. And it's completely packed. And the guy comes out, sticks his head out of the door, and he says, I'm so sorry. There's no room in the inn. Now, what's interesting is that the word that is actually translated in can be also translated guest room. And what most scholars think probably took place was that it wasn't particularly an inn that they went to in terms of a motel, for example, as much as it probably was a house of a friend, a relative, and were asking to be housed in their guest room. And there was no room in the guest room. Notice how the NIV translates the same verse. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, talking about Mary. And she, Mary, wrapped him, Jesus, in cloths and placed him in a manger. Because, here's the translation, there was no guest room available for them. In most instances, the thought is that they went to a person's house. There was no guest room. But on the bottom floor is where they had the uh, space for the animals. And so Mary and Joseph went and found space in that bottom floor. And there, the feeding trough, the manger was there. And the story continues. Now, here's the basic bottom line, which whatever version we want to jive with and rock with, if you will, the basic question remains the same. And it is this. How are you and I making room in our lives for Jesus? How are we making space for God in our lives? But there are others who would argue, and I'm going to agree with them uh, today, that before we begin to wrestle with that question, there's another question that precedes. Some would suggest even supersedes the first question. And that insight that I want to lay bare for us today comes to us wrapped up in what I want to call a shocking scandal. Now, if you're familiar with the events that surround the life of Jesus, you may be familiar with the fact that there are some scandals that are worked into those events. I want to talk about, very quickly, three of them today. So the first scandal uh, is really found in verse 5. It talks about uh, Joseph and Mary leaving Nazareth, going to Bethlehem. And here's what it says. And he, Joseph, took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged, who was now expecting a child. And we know she was nine months pregnant. Now, the marriage ceremony back in that uh, time usually stretched over a two-year period, had multiple phases. You weren't married until the final stage wherein you consummated the relationship physically. They had not done that. And yet the text tells us that the, so they were engaged, according to the text, and yet she was expecting. So here was the scandalous question. Here was the question that, un, that brings out the scandal was in most people's mind. Here's the question. Who's the daddy? 
Yeah, who's the dad? This is literally the question that people are asking. Literally, literally. Throughout the village of Nazareth, folks are asking, who's the daddy? And don't tell us none of this stuff like something supernatural happened and somehow you pregnant. They weren't buying that at all. They were concluding that either A, Mary tipped out on Joseph. Can somebody go, ooh? <laughs> yeah, scandalous, scandalous. And that Joseph, being a really cool guy, right, just took her in. Or B, that Joseph and Mary got, became sexually involved long before they were supposed to, which meant that they were both exposed to shame and embarrassment and scandal. Either way you slice it, guys, this is a scandal. <laughs> the second scandal takes place in verse 7. Notice, Mary, she, wrapped him, Jesus, in cloths and placed him in a manger. If you read Luke very closely, you'll see that he's organizing the events around Jesus' life in such a way as to make it clear that Jesus is no ordinary child. That, in fact, Jesus is ultimately destined to be king of kings and lords of lords. This was a big deal because in that day, uh, Caesar Augustus was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. And he had turned Rome from a republic into an empire, and he was, he, was, he was held as the savior, right, of the world, and many of these other titles. And what Luke is saying is, no, this one that is born, laid in the manger, this is the real king. He's not just the king of Rome. He's the king of the world. He's the king of kings and lords of lords. Now, here's what's scandalous. Because in that day, if you were king, born into royalty, and Jesus was certainly of the lineage of David, right? Right? King David. You were born of noble birth. Noble birth. And uh, big-time kings, if you will. When they were born, there was a huge announcement. They'd throw a big party. Poets would write poems and choirs. Courses would sing songs. And they'd throw a big party. They'd get everybody who was somebody to gather around. And the word would spread forth from but notice what happens in this part, in this passage. Verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby. I love this. One of my favorite passages. Living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. I like the way uh, uh, the message translates this passage. It says, and there were shepherds camping out in the neighborhood. Y'all, come on. I love it. I love it. I love it. Now, let me ask you this question. Who were the shepherds? You can't understand the magnitude of the scandal that I'm about to describe until you first begin to wrestle with this question, who were the shepherds? Let me tell you, collectively as a group, uh, these were people who had no social or political status. They had no education. They had no wealth, so they were limited and confined to poverty. Mixed in among them were criminals and people who had done atrocious things. These are, uh, they, they, these are people that you wouldn't necessarily invite over for dinner. These are some folk, in some cases, that you wouldn't trust to be around your kids. Yeah, these, these folk, they would, they, they would occupy some of the same spaces as what we call the unhoused community today. And you know the unhoused community is made up of a variety of people. For In some cases, there's people who are dealing with mental health challenges. In other cases, hard times have fallen on them. In other cases, 
people have just decided, this is the way I want to live my life. Well, this is reflective of the shepherds of that day. Uh, many of them were nomadic, and, and often they were drifters in search of a purpose. Drifters in search of a purpose. They had no names. In a book that is very big on lineage, there's no lineage. We don't know their names. We don't know who they were. They qualified to be simply, they were the poster children, if you will, for the label nobodies. Yes, because in their culture, in their time, they were nobodies. They were nobody special, nobody important, nobody of note, nobody to write anything about, nobody who was strategic to the unfolding of history. They were just simply nobodies. Scandalous. Oh, check out the text. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them. Who? The nobodies. The shepherds, the folk who had criminals and people who have done atrocious things mixed in. The angels of the, the angel of the Lord appeared to them. Who? Those who were drifting in search of purpose, who had no strategic, nothing special about their lives. We don't even know their name. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they, of course, in the midst of the glory and the light of God, was terrified. And the angel said, I bring you good news that will bring great joy. Notice, he says, I bring you, the shepherds, the nobodies, the no-names, the uneducated, the unwealthy. Come on, the scrupulous, the criminal folk who are mixed in. I bring you good news that will cause great joy. Not just for you, but for all of the people. And although you understand yourself as nobodies, you've been written into the creative unfolding of history. The announcement of the birth of the king is going to come first to you. In that day, in that culture, that would be scandalous that you would gather nobodies and bring out a course of heavenly angels, come on now, to make the announcement of a king uh, who's born as a baby lying in a feeding trough. And you say, scandalous. Yeah, scandalous. Well. Here's the good news that's being announced. And it is simply this, that the shepherds came to know. God made room for you. Yes, the nobodies. Come on, the folk that we have criminals and folk who've done atrocious things mixed in. Yeah, yeah, you. God has made room for you. The unhoused. Yes, you. God has made room. Those struggling with mental health challenges. Yes, you. God has made room for you. Those who are drifting in search of purpose. God has made room for you. The birth of Jesus is the proclamation that God has made room for you. Even if your life is defined and shaped by scandal for you. A remarkable thing is that when I was a kid growing up, preteens, etc., I was always drafted when Christmas came around to play the role of the angel. Always. And I just want to tell you guys, I hated playing the role of the angel. 
either I was the angel who showed up uh, to Mary and, and would always, you know, starts off, and we had to use the King James Version language, right? So, hell, uh, thou who art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, right? And I was always felt funny, kind of weird when I say hell, because the word is spelled H-A-I-L, but it always felt like me, I would say H-E-L-L. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> oh, I played the role of the angel who we just read about who would show up and says, uh, you know, do not be afraid. <laughs> but behold, I bring you great tidings of great joy that will be for all of the people. I always had to play the role of the angel. I hated it. I hated it because I had to learn these lines. But probably more than anything else, I hated it because I just felt so uniquely unqualified to play the role. And I felt like everybody who knew me, and that was everybody in my little small town of Cushada, knew that I was uniquely unqualified to play the It was like, you're going to get Hermit? That kid? To play the angel? You mean that bad boy? He's going to play an angel? <laughs> Every time I would step into that role, year after year, in one setting or the other, I would be uniquely aware of my scars, which was terribly pronounced in that time, and I would always feel ugly. And of course, I didn't feel good enough. And part of it had to do with the fact I had a horrible reputation that was well-earned. I could promise to tell you that right, I'd leave from playing the angel and go get into some trouble immediately, right? Well-earned. It was me. And who's the problem? And when I would come out there, come on, dressed in that white sheet, with the angels, with the wings made out of foil <laughs> on my back. And I would show up and say, hell, <laughs> thou who are highly favored. And that spotlight would shine on me. And I would be ever so conscious that right then, in that moment, everybody in the quote-unquote church house would see all of my ugliness and all of my unworthiness and my horrible reputation would be on display. And I just felt like it was such a scandal for me to play an angel. Scandalous. <laughs> I just had a birthday. Turned 59 years old. Got a lot of wonderful cards and emails and stuff, all of you who participated in that, thank you, thank you a thousand times. You know, the older you get, the more you reflect. And uh, so I was thinking about this time as I read this text, because I love this text. I almost preach it almost every year. So what is it about this text? And I think in retrospect, wow, I'm just so baffled, amazed at how God, long before I knew it, was setting me up and was teaching me in very subtle ways. Yes, I had horrible scars. Yes, it is true, I wasn't good enough. That's right. No, I, my, my righteousness did not rank high enough. That's what I mean by good enough. Yes, it is true, I had a horrible and well-earned reputation that was terrible. And yet God was showing me, boy, don't you know, that the Christmas story that Jesus, my son, coming into the world is all about the fact, is all about me making room for you. For you. With your scars and your bad reputation and your scandalous history, I've made room for you. For you. Oh my gosh. 
notice this. Luke is marvelous. I love the way Luke talks about the, these events and, and who he highlights and who he elevates in his storytelling, y'all. And if you go to chapter 1 in Luke, you'll find a story where Zacharias is the, is the, is the, is the first story, and, and he has the first encounter with the angel Gabriel, and Gabriel introduces himself. And here's, here's, here's how that encounter, encounter unfolds. It says, and the angel said to him, Zacharias, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I have been sent to you to speak to you and to tell you this good news. But notice what he says. I stand as a norm in the presence of God. To stand in the presence of God in the midst of, in the, you might imagine him in the throne room of God. And you would have to know that to stand in the presence of God is to stand in the glory of God. The glory of God would surround you. That the, the spotlight, the light that flows from the source of light, come on now. Uh, uh, you'd be standing in the presence of that light. Isn't it fascinating that in Luke 2, 9, that we find that the shepherds end up standing in the same space that Gabriel and the angels stood in. Notice the text. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them. Put Herman Hamilton in the dim, y'all. To them. And the glory of the Lord, the same glory that surrounds the throne, y'all. The glory of the Lord, the same light that, 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 that lights up where, where, where the ultimate presence of God is. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were. God, the birth of his son, illustrates that he comes to those of us who understand ourselves as nobodies, nobody special, nobody significant to the unfolding of history, <laughs> nobody worthy of being elevated, paid attention to, written about, nobody to God through the birth of his son Jesus comes to the nobodies whose lives perhaps are defined by various scandals and brokenness, and he comes and he creates, he makes room, y'all, come on now, so that we will find our place in the shepherds, y'all, standing right in the same space that the angels, oh my goodness, that the angel stands in. Oh, that's called grace. That's called mercy. Oh my gosh. That's called a magnificent love. Oh, that's the message of Christmas. Here's what I want you to think about. Listen to me. Whoever you are, whatever you're dealing with, whatever life circumstances you're living in, whatever challenge you're confronted with, however you understand yourself, however you identify yourself in, in this world in which we live, whatever, I need you to get this point. That the birth of Jesus is an irrefutable statement that God has made room for you. How? In three ways. First of all, God has made room for you in his thoughts. Come on, consider that. That God regularly thinks about you. Not how to kill you. Come on now. Not how to judge you. Not how to destroy you. He regularly thinks about you. You're on his mind. 
Notice the psalm that says this. How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of the sand. And when I wake up, you are still with me. Translation, you're still thinking about me. You're still, your thoughts are still focused on me. Isn't this amazing? Now, had I asked you before this, how often does God think about you? Put your name in. How often does he think about you? Maybe you would have said, well, maybe he thinks about me. Every now and then, the psalmist says, no, that's not right, because, because, because his thoughts about you are like the grains of the sand. You can't even number them. You can count every now and then. <laughs> Maybe he thinks about me once a week. Well, you can count that up. Come on now. But his thoughts towards you are like the grains of the sand. Come on. Uh, are you in grief? He's, his, 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 you're, you're on his mind. Are you feeling isolated alone? You're on his mind. You're embedded in his thoughts. Are you feeling powerless against your own brokenness? You're on his mind. You're embedded in his thoughts. Every day you wake up, you're on. He may not be on your mind, but you're on his mind. He's made room for you in his thoughts. Secondly, he's made room for you in his heart. Jeremiah 31, 3 puts it like this. I love this. The Lord appeared to us uh, in the past, and here's what he said. And it is an ever-vibrating statement forward, no matter who you are. If you're on the planet, he says this about you. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I keep drawing you to myself with an unfailing kindness. If merely you can see it. I've got a grace that doesn't give up on you. So whoever you are, God's saying, I love you. You can't do anything about it. To the Vietnam vet, sitting at home, maybe watching this all by yourself. You feel like your country has forgotten about you. Your family has abandoned you. I need you to hear God tell you today, I have loved you with an everlasting love. To that person who's watching me from prison, you did some pretty terrible stuff to get in prison. You would agree you ought to be in prison. And yet God wants you to hear today, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Oh, my God, to the person who perhaps is watching this from an unhoused shelter, I need you to know that life hasn't broken your way, but I still, you've got to hear this, but God declares, I have loved you with an everlasting love. To the high school student who feels alone and misunderstood and confused, I need you to hear God declare, I have loved you with an everlasting love. To the widow who's grieving the loss of her or his loved one, I need you to hear God say to you, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I love you. I've made room for you in my heart. I made room for you, but not just for you. I've made room in my heart for you and your grief, and your tears. I've made room in my heart for you and your loneliness. I've made room in my heart for you and whatever the circumstances are that defines and shapes your experience of living right now. Come on, I, I know I can't get you in pieces, so I've made room for you and all that comes with you in my heart. Wow. I want you to think about that. 
He makes room for you. He's made room for you in his thoughts. He's made room for you in his heart. And finally, he's made room for you in his plans. Come on, in his present, in his future. Listen to what the text says, Ephesians 1.5. I love it. I, I quote it every year this time. Oh, God decided. He made a decision to make room for you. Before he laid the foundations of the earth, he made a decision he was going to make room for you. God decided in advance to adopt us, come on now, into his own family by bringing us to himself. Here's Christmas through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. I hope you heard Pastor uh, Tilden's message last weekend. If you didn't, please go back and check out last weekend's message. It was outstanding. One of the points that Pastor Tilden made uh, is an incredible, profound set of points, actually. And one was uh, that oftentimes we think about, uh, uh, we become grateful, we think, because of our joy. But at the end of the day, it is that we become joyful because of our gratitude. And so the question is, how do I sustain my gratitude? And one of the premier scientists who's looking at the neurology of how we are structured in our brains, come on now, has discovered that we have been hardwired to recognize the redemptive story, talking about Christmas now, the redemptive story uh, in our brains, that, 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 that we get gratitude the most as we dwell on a story where someone has sacrificed their all in order to save us. That's Christmas, y'all, combined with Easter. Come on, that's the birth of Jesus who comes into the world, who ultimately, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believed in him, who ultimately sacrifices his life to save us. Here's my point. God has worked you into his plan, but watch this. God has planned himself into your life. He's built an awareness of who he is. He's built an affinity and an affection for Christmas. He's hard-wired it in you. That's why you get excited about the Hallmark movies, y'all, because there's a, there's a kernel of the ultimate uh, uh, experience of Christmas which reminds us that the improbable and the impossible happens and is wrapped in love the way I talk about it. Christmas, Christ in the mess with us. So not only has he planned himself into your, into, your, into, into your life, but he has planned your life into his purpose. So I conclude by saying, believe it. Can you say believe it? Come on, shout believe it. <laughs> Type it in the chat, believe it. Come on, just say it with me. Believe it. Can you believe it? Can you believe it? Can you believe it? Can you believe it? Come on now that God has, come on, come on. Christmas is the reminder that God has, has, has made room for us in his thoughts. His mind is always on us in his heart. His love is everlasting for us. Come on, in his plan, he's fixed it so that we can know him and he has built us into his purpose. Come on now. But now the older people used to say this, God will meet us where we are. He will accept us the way he finds us, but he won't leave us the way he discovered us. Come on now. There is transformation, but it begins with believing it. Believe what? Believe what the angels ultimately announced to the shepherds. If you can ultimately believe, what, well, what did they say to the shepherds? Hear what they ultimately said to the shepherds. They said, they said, the Savior, talking about Jesus. Yes, the Messiah, talking about Jesus. Yes, the Lord has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David, and you will recognize. Watch this. Come on. They don't say that Jesus is a Savior. 
Doesn't say he's a Messiah. Doesn't say he's a Lord. Come on now. They want all of the folk who, who gather around Augustus to know this. Come on now. They want all of the folk who gather around Mr. Biden to know this. They want all the folk who gather around Mr. Trump to know this. Come on now. That is Jesus. Can you say Jesus? Is the Savior. That means he's the ultimate one that redeems our broken dreams. Come on now. Is the Messiah. He's the ultimate deliverer of us. Come on. He doesn't just deliver us from he also delivers us through including death come on the Jesus come on is ultimate is is the Lord come on now here when we make him Lord over our destiny and over our lives he has the final say misery speaks and pain speaks and death speaks but he has the final say that's the one that was born in the city of David that's the one that you will recognize him by this sign. What is the sign? Well, he will be wrapped in strips that you usually wrap poor babies in. Come on, that you wrap up lambs when they're born to keep their legs straight. Use those strips, right? You'll, he'll be wrapped there and lying in a manger. Lying in a manger. Lying in a manger. Believe it. Here's my last insight. Do you know that when the shepherds believed, do you know that the shepherds transitioned into being angels? Oh, yes. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. Look at what it says. It says, after seeing him, Jesus, the baby, they went and found him just where he was, said he was going to be. The shepherds told everyone. What had happened? See, the angels told them. Now they are now the angels. They are the hell. Because the basic meaning of the word angel means messenger, y'all. Messenger. And at the end of the day, there is the, the best messengers to those who have scandals attached to their lives, to those who feel like they were nobody, are people who were in the same place. That's why, come on now, I think that's another reason why God had me, come on, kept drafting me in this role of angel because I was a shepherd, but he was going to transform me into an angel, y'all. Come on. He specializes in transforming shepherds into angels. And, and every week, come on now, I get up and take up my angel duties, and I announce to you some good news, y'all, that it doesn't matter who you are. God has made room for you. Wow. God has made room for you. Can you say this with me? God has made room for me. Can you say it? God has made room for me. And so, so I'm a shepherd turned angel. I want to challenge you to become shepherds turned angels. And not only do I want you to know that God has made room for you in his thoughts, in his heart, in his plan. But I want to charge you to exit from this message, and I want you to go to your family and your friends and your colleagues and your circles of relationship, and I need you to tell them that Christmas is all about God, reminding us that God has made room for them. And by the way, I want you to invite them to NBCC. Tell them, you know, I, you may tell them, I don't know what you think about church, but I want to invite you to my church, NBCC, because it is a unique congregation in this place. Come on now. We believe that everybody matters to God. And so everybody matters to us. And so over this Christmas season, invite your friends and family to a church where we deeply believe in making room for them. Oh, let them know up front. Come on. We are diverse in our ethnicity and in our politics. 
politics and, 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 and some of the, the values and issues of the common day. Come on. But we are centered on Jesus and loving like Jesus. We're Jesus first community. And our task is to make room for everybody who comes. Tell them to come and experience NBC during the Christmas season. Go be an angel to them. And in the process, tell them your story of how God has made room for you. Amen and amen. Lord Willow, we'll see you next week.